Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mercy House University podcast. We're continuing today with our series on how God explains everything. Uh, and today, uh, Patrick is going to be leading us through a discussion of an argument for the existence of God that you have probably never heard of before. So Patrick, can you tell us about this uh, little known argument? Yeah, so this is called the argument from propositions. And propositions are not something that, uh, you know, that's not a kind of thing that we tend to talk about in our everyday parlance. So, you know, this argument is going to be like a little bit more of a challenge, maybe, for people who aren't familiar with uh, philosophical terminology, but we're going to do our best. Another name that you might give it might just be the argument from meaning or like the argument from truth and falsity. So um, here's the basic idea. I'll try and set it out in as few words and maybe hopefully as simple words as I can, and then we'll kind of unpack it a little bit. So the basic idea is that, look, there are lots of things that are true or false, lots of truths and falsehoods. and. Lots of those truths and falsehoods don't depend on like what you or I or other people think, obviously. Like, for example, some of the truths of mathematics don't depend on, well, all the truths of mathematics don't depend on what you or I think. And many of them are such that nobody has ever even thought about them and couldn't even possibly think about them because they're too complex for us to even comprehend. But they're still true nonetheless, even though we can't think about them. We can't cognize them. Uh, or, you know, truths about distant parts of the unobservable universe are still true, even though nobody's ever thought about them. And maybe can't, at least right now, because we don't know about those parts of the universe. Okay, so there are these truths or falsehoods. Some of them are such that nobody has ever thought them or even could think about them. And since they're true or false, they are things that represent the world as being a certain way. Uh, either they represent it accurately or not accurately. But since they represent, it seems like they have to be the kind of thing that someone is thinking. That is, for something to be representational, it seems like it has to be about stuff. And a lot of people have thought to have that property of being about something, you have to come from a mind. Only minds can have that kind of uh, intentionality is the philosophical term, but really just like being about something that comes from a mind. Okay, so if we want to account for there being meaningful truths or falsehoods that we can't even possibly think about, but that have to come from a mind, then we're going to have to posit someone else who is capable of thinking those things. And that's what's going to lead us to God. That's the, the big overview of the argument. So when you talk about things being about other things, like, so just to give some examples, like a, like a, um, a word or a sentence can be about something or a road sign can be about something. Yeah, yeah, totally. So, I mean, I think the simple case is that uh, a lot of our thoughts are, you know, about things. Uh, You you might have some thoughts that aren't about anything particularly. You might just have a thought that is just like an experience of pain 
or joy, but most of your thoughts are about things. You know, you're happy that you got the new job or you're, you believe that two plus two equals four. And those are thoughts about the new job or the fact that two plus two equals four. Uh, but then there are other things in the world that are about stuff that aren't thoughts. There's like, you know, uh, the novel that I'm reading right now about a post-apocalyptic sci-fi story. Uh, you know, that's about some alternate world. That's not anybody's thought. It's a novel. But, you know, plausibly the way that that those pieces of paper that are bound together came to be about anything is because of some thoughts that an author had and some actions they took. Um, and, you know, when we say some words or talk to each other, our, our, our sentences are about things often, but plausibly the only way those get to be about anything is because of the thoughts that we're having or the intentions that we have when we're speaking. Just, you know, just, Making noise uh, doesn't get you any kind of aboutness. If a ba- if a baby, for example, happens to form uh, the, just the right sound, you know, if they say uh, if if the sound dog comes out of their mouth, but they're only one week old, you don't think that they actually said the word dog. If they don't, if you think they didn't have the right intention as well, mm-hmm. and maybe even more obviously, like something like a rock or a tree about <laughs> <Yeah>. anything. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, okay. So we're talking about uh, something being about something and therefore being able to be true or false. Um, but what do we, what do we mean when we say that something is true or is a truth and what would qualify something as being meaningful? Yeah. So we need to get clear on what do we mean by, truth or false or falsehood and uh, what kind of what sense of meaning do we have in mind so I think the simple case is to think about sentences being true or false uh, those are the like most common kinds of things that we talk about being true or false uh, or that we kind of worry about whether they are true or false but it's like pretty clear if you start to think about it that sentences are not the ultimate bearers of truth or falsehood. That is, sentences are only true or false if what they mean is true or false. And I'll give you an example to help kind of clear that up. So here are two example sentences. Snow is white. Schnee ist weiss. The first one is in English. You know what it means. The second one is in German. It means the same thing. So there's a thing that these sentences share, a meaning that they both have is the intuitive way to think about it. And that meaning is true. It, it, you know, means that snow is white and it's true that snow is white. Um, So this meaning, this shared meaning that the sentences both have is what a lot of philosophers have come to call a proposition. Like it's a natural explanation of this, of this phenomenon of synonymy across languages, that there are these things that sentences share, the the propositions that they express, that are independent of the languages that we speak, um, but that sentences in different languages can sort of attach to by expressing the same propositions. 
and so when you assert a true sentence, it's, it's a true sentence because it's expressing a true proposition. And when you believe something true, it's a true belief because it's, uh, well, because it's a belief that attaches to a true, posi- true proposition. It's a belief in a true proposition. So these things are the things that you say, think, believe, doubt, know, and so forth. Um, and many propositions not only are true or false, but would be true or false, like no matter what, regardless of what you happen to think about them uh, or even could think about them. And what would be an example of a proposition like that? Uh, of one that would be true no matter what? Yeah. Yeah, like uh, all the mathematical truths uh, we tend to think are necessarily true. So they would be true no matter what you happen to think about them. And, you know, maybe the laws of nature are, are like that. You know, at least in, a, in some sense, they would be true no matter what we thought about them. So, Patrick, you're saying that for something to be true or false, right, it has to be meaningful. And that we have these different sentences that are making different truth claims about snow or, or different things. And what makes those true or false is not necessarily that sentence itself in English or German, but, but sort of uh, a proposition with both, which both of those rep, uh, sort of are both conveying or representing, right? This, this claim about this actual thing in the world, which is snow and that it's white. Um, and you could say that in different languages, but you'd be getting at the same truth in a sense. And that, that would be the proposition. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of picture. Okay, so I guess as I'm I'm thinking about that and wondering, um, d- does that suggest that these propositions just sort of exist out abstractly, you know, out in the universe, and uh, without anybody in particular thinking about them? And h- how would that even be possible? Um, does that make sense for us to talk about something being meaningful when there's no one to actually think about it, and therefore? To have to have it be meaningful or for to be meaningful for them yeah that's a great question and that's something that a lot of people have uh, a lot of, no, I guess I shouldn't say a lot of people because normal people don't worry about this but a lot of philosophers <laughs> have worried about that kind of question throughout the history of philosophy uh, namely this idea that there could be objects that represent without uh, being thinkers right like we all know that we as thinking as thinking things can represent the world being certain ways we can we in having thoughts our thoughts are about things around us and so that's a familiar phenomenon to us but you know we don't think that other things in the world's other objects like cars or rocks or even numbers or planets things that are more remote from us are about anything we just think that they're there and they don't represent the world as being a certain way and then there are some things around us that are about stuff you know a dictionary or a novel or a movie those are things that are about things but like we were talking about before they get to be about stuff because of their relationship to thinking things and so it would be really weird if propositions were these objects that were like a novel or a movie in being about stuff, but unlike them in not being related at all to a thinking thing. If they were more like a rock or a planet in being just out remote away from any thinking uh, people, 
and so, and still representing, uh, you know, that the world is a certain way and being about something. That would be pretty b- bizarre. So what some people have suggested is that this this aboutness, being about something, is what they say is a mark of the mental. That is, anytime you find that something is about something else, that could only be the case if the thing that is about the other thing is a thought, or if it's like uh, if it's gotten that ability to be about something by being, you know, related to a thinking being. Like, you know, we don't think that a novel is a thought per se, but we think it's it's been in relationship with the thinking person in the right kind of way to come to be about things. And it's so, it's written in such a way that it's intelligible and meaningful to anybody right. who who could read it, right? Yeah, it's like picked we, it up. yeah, it comes from a thinking person, even though it itself is not a thought. Just like sentences and uh, you know road signs and things like that. Okay, so come back to propositions then. If we think it would be too bizarre for propositions to be just out there representing without any relation to thinking beings. Then we, then we should say, well, propositions must all be related to something or someone that's thinking. But recall one other thing that we've already said, that there's an infinite collection of propositions of, that like, represent the world as being certain ways independently of what we say or think, and that many of them are true even though we've never thought them that we couldn't possibly think them. Um, This can be proven mathematically that there are certain mathematical truths that not only are they true, but that we can't possibly uh, think them. Like we can't, uh, you know, sort of spell out in detail what, what the truth is Uh, that there are truths about, remote parts of the of the universe that no one has ever thought okay so we have these two kind of competing ideas then that there are lots and lots of propositions that no one has ever thought and no one like none of us has ever thought and none of us even could think and yet the propositions can do what they do represent only by being related in the right way to somebody who thinks so how could we resolve that tension is like the question that sort of brings us to the conclusion of this argument. Uh, did you have a thought, Austin? More of a question as I was reading this right before we got on this and just curious, uh, when you talk about being infinite, obviously like in the sense of like, we don't know how many there are and there in a sense could be lots and lots of them, but wouldn't, and, and this is just me like nitpicking and thinking like, thinking about early arguments about like contingency and finitude and stuff like that wouldn't by definition all wouldn't there be a finite number by definition, even if we, it's way more than we could conceive of. What, uh, why? I'm just, sorry. I'm just being, why would there be a finite number? Cause it's not like God. <laughs> Are you thinking about like the, the Kalam cosmological argument where we argued against an infinite past? Yeah, like unless you have an eternal universe, could you have really have an in, infinite number of possible, yeah, like 
it, it would be like a, a, a number we couldn't possibly conceive of, but it would still be a finite. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the usual view is that, actually, I think this is just the only view, is that um, if there are propositions that are just out there that, you know, we didn't think up ourselves, then there are infinitely many of them because there are infinitely many truths and falsehoods. Like, you know, for any point in space time, which there are infinitely many right, you know, here, there's going to be truths and falsehoods about those points in space time, for example. Yeah, I mean, you, you can just stick with math. Like, there are infinitely many mathematical truths. There's a truth about every number, and there are infinitely many numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's the Kalam has to has to work off of basically facts about extension, right? Like facts about space and time. Um, so there there are different ways of trying to to deal with this issue. So like Craig is the main Kalam guy and he is anomaly. anomaly. Mm-hmm. So you could actually say, yeah, there are no propositions in the sense that we're talking about. Um, and that's part of the reason he's a nominalist, actually, if I remember correctly, is because he can't have, he doesn't think that there can be infinitely many of anything. But then there are people like Proust and Coons who say like, well, no, 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 what, what's important to the Kalam argument is just that you can't have an infinite causal sequence of things. And there are also people who say, well, actually, all you really need for the Kalam argument, I mean, um, even Craig would say all you need is, is an argument that you can't have an infinite sequence of events in time. Um, and so you can endorse the Kalam argument without endorsing the more ambitious claim that it's impossible for there to be an actual infinite of any sort. I guess that's more what I'm thinking. Like, yeah, theoretically you could count forever, right? Like you could have an infinitely high number, but not in actuality. Uh, I mean, anyone who thinks I mean, that like numbers are a thing won't agree with that because they think because numbers already exist yeah because if they're abstractly and mathematics entails that there are uncountably infinitely many of them then they must all exist yeah yeah it it would be arbitrary to say there are numbers but they stop at this certain point unless you thought that we like bring them into existence by thinking them up or something which i mean that is a view but yeah it's a false view yeah I mean, if you thought there were, like, some total number of things in existence. Yeah, so the intuitive idea behind my saying that there are infinitely many of them is just that whatever view of propositions you you should want to give, it should be a view that, like, uh, makes sense of there being all the truths that that intuitively we think there are, where the proposition, you know, where that view of propositions... Uh, sort of metaphysically bases the truths, as it were. And uh, so, yeah, that, that's really all, all there is to say about it. So, so you know, there are infin- we think there are infinitely many truths. And so if you're going to give a view of propositions, you're, unless you want to, like, bite a big bullet, you're going to have to posit infinitely many propositions any of them about which we've never thought and couldn't possibly think. And so where does God come into the picture here? Right. So if we have this view where uh, there's this infinite collection of propositions that represent the world as being certain ways and 
they do it independently of how we th- of how we think, many of them at least. And, but propositions can only represent in virtue of being related to someone who's thinking, then we got to posit some thinker that's letting the propositions do what they do. And it can't be us because the proposi- we've already said the propositions represent what they do independently of us uh, since there are so many of them that we haven't thought and many that we can't think. So clearly, whoever this thinker is must be someone who's infinite in mental power, because they're going to be able to. They're going to need to be able to think all the things there are to think. So uh, the the best explanation of everything that we've posited so far is that there is a being capable of thinking all possible thoughts, all the propositions there are to think. Yeah, and so so that gives you, like you said, a being that has like kind of an infinite intellect, right. right? Has the intellectual capacity to think like everything that can be thought, but it also gives you other features, right? So it's it's um it's got to be um, an eternal being because mm-hmm. most propositions are eternal, right? Maybe even all of them, depending on your view, and it's also got to be a necessary being because. Um, most yeah, propositions I mean, uh, again are necessary beings themselves. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so you could wonder, uh, I guess, at this point, why that being would have to be God, a necessary, eternal being that can think all possible thoughts. Well, we've kind of rehearsed this line of thought a number of times already in this series, but look. To be a necessary eternal being that can think all possible thoughts is to possess a pretty great degree of perfection. And the best explanation that anything would possess that degree of perfection is that it has all the perfections. Uh, so this gives us a good reason to think that there's some being that has all perfections. Right. And again, for the details about that last inductive inference from some perfections to all perfections, you can always go back to the first episode in this series where we explain that move uh, in detail. Mm -hmm. All right. So we talked about how uh, everything to be true or false has to be meaningful and that those meanings come from propositions and that propositions have to be in order to be about something in the world and to be meaningful in that way, they must be known by someone or thought by someone. And because there are all these propositions, which, us as humans uh, have not thought and will never think and are beyond our capacity to think, then we must, uh, then it it seems reasonable to think, well, there must be somebody who can think these. Um, Otherwise, they couldn't exist. And that would lead us to to God, uh, an infinite knower and thinker.